0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another Trendsetters podcast episode. Today, I am joined by Corey Treffoletti, the SVP and Marketing Executive at FIS Global. For those that don't know, FIS Global is a Fortune 500 company, and after the acquisition of WorldPay in 2019, the largest processing and payments company in the world. They're best known for their fintech and facilitate the movement of roughly $9 trillion through about 75 billion transactions of 20,000 plus clients across the globe. A lot of big numbers here. And Corey, I'm thrilled to dive into this episode today. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me. So so first question I want to ask about, for those that haven't heard about FIS Global, how would you kind of best describe that? And then particularly your role as the SVP um, on the marketing side of things, what, what does that role look like?
1: So FIS is a big company that really is responsible for making sure that money moves properly through the economy globally. In a very efficient, very effective manner. So they've pioneered a lot of different ways for money to be managed and for money to be uh, managed by larger corporations as well as SMBs and small, smaller businesses. So they are really responsible for just about everything in bank software, core banking platforms. So that, you know, the way major banks actually operate their businesses will run off of their software, the way large corporations do everything from remittance and managing all their billing and invoicing to the way credit cards are being processed, to the way online e-commerce is being processed. So it's a large portion of all the different ways that money moves around the globe.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. And for those listening right now, it's I would best describe it as a little bit more intense than the fintech platform you manage your expenses on. It's a little bit bit more intense than a spreadsheet, right? Well,
1: there's a good chance that beyond the spreadsheet, if you're using any other pieces of software to manage your money, somebody's using FIS in the back end. It's actually kind of one of the best kept secrets in the S&P 500.
0: Yeah, I love that insight. And... Something that I find interesting, you're obviously in the finance realm and a large part of your background has been in the software, B2B, data, uh, finance now. Um, so so less of your creative, consumer-facing marketing, right? Uh, but and, and more of your data-driven. But you've kind of pioneered an interesting approach that, that you claim kind of as the data-driven storyteller approach. Um, mm-hmm. I guess, how would you best define that and, and how do you ultimately kind of bring that to life?
1: So it's a model that I started working on with a bunch of people about 12, 13, 14 years ago. And it's actually really, really simple. And when you when you led into that, you were talking about how maybe fintech can't be as creative as going and talking to consumers. And I actually argue that it can be because B2B advertising, B2B marketing is the same as B2C, you know, same as business as consumer, but you're talking to somebody who is a consumer in a business mindset. So you can be just as creative. And the data-driven storytelling approach really allows you to do that both from a consumer perspective and a business perspective. So what it does, it's a simple three-step process that I apply to everything from a marketing perspective. It's data in, the value of creation, and then data out. So data in is where more data-driven marketers tend to go, which is you look at all the information, all the insights that you have at your disposal. You identify the signal inside of that noise. What are the most important pieces of information for you to focus on? You extract that and you use that to drive hypotheses. Those hypotheses is where you create value. And in the traditional way of looking at marketing, this is the art of marketing. And this is what most marketers used to do, which is they would come up with ideas for campaigns, come up with ideas for stories and narratives and messaging and creative and everything else that perpetuates the perception of a brand to an audience. Then you put a campaign into market, you activate it. And there's a difference between activation and execution. Execution means you put a campaign out there. Activation means you figure out how to tag it, track it, And figure out how do you create that endless feedback loop into the system so you get more signal coming back into the system. So people talk a lot about the data, the art and science of marketing. This blends both of those because the value creation is the art, but on either end you have the science. And it really unifies it well. And it gives you something that's never static. It gives you something that's never stagnant. It gives you a dynamic campaign that's always going to be continuing to refine and revise. And it's fluid. And it always improves over time. And that's the model that I've been using
0: yeah i love that model and i think it's something that as marketing continues to to kind of grow in in terms of fragmentation i see it as something that that's imperative and it's going to be vital because it's almost it's almost inherently difficult now to kind of departmentalize all of these uh different executions and everyone almost needs to be dangerous enough in those categories to at least understand and and apply those and um you know kind of on on that note of, of agility um and, and the ability to execute across a wide array, you're, you're obviously with FIS now, you've been with Cisco and Oracle, but you've also co-founded or been the CMO of, of quite a few uh, startups. So mm-hmm. one particular that kind of caught, caught my eye, uh, especially on your LinkedIn profile, was Blue Kai um, and, and kind of the roles and responsibilities they managed there and some of the numbers, things of that nature. Uh, what, what was your experience like um, kind of leading the charge there? Because I, I, I kind of saw a, a brief synopsis, which I know isn't everything, but it was like 30 hats you were wearing at mm-hmm. one time, you know, as as CMO. So so what did that experience look like? I'd love to, to get a sense of that.
1: That was one of the best experiences I've ever had working. Um, and I'd say there's probably two or three reasons why. So with BlueKai, we pioneered data as a tool for marketers and advertisers. So we created the first data exchange. So we had the largest collection of third-party data that marketers could use to understand their customers and to also target their customers. And then we also pioneered the first DMP or data management platform, which was a platform for using first party along with third party data. So you became significantly more intelligent in your go to market efforts. And what it did is it extracted data from media and made data its own conversation. And when I got there, they had already been doing this with the third party data exchange, but we launched the DMP and then we really revolutionized the way that people would go to business for marketing and advertising. And so on one thing that I learned there, and was how to use data properly. And we would go teach other marketers how to do that. So I became a marketer to marketers to help them understand the different ways you use data. So that by itself was interesting. But I also learned two other things along the way there. One was about leadership and about how to put together the right kind of team to do something like that, which was really around humility and a lack of ego. We had an amazing team that was led by our CEO, Omar tawakal and the team was fantastic because it was really about the intelligence of the team There was no ego getting in the way of making decisions. And I learned a lot about leadership and about management from that experience because we never, it was the best smart collection of humble people I've ever worked with. And so that to me was, was a fantastic experience. And then the third thing about it was I also led inside sales in addition to marketing and seeing how those two groups would merge together and how inside sales became a proof point for the marketing messaging, and also became a liaison with the field sales teams. And so those three experiences really helped us to figure out how to push that company to market, to push it to success. Eventually, we sold the company to
0: Oracle and it did quite well. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that startup, uh, more nimble experience as uh, what, you know, one of the best learning experiences for you. So so I guess for a lot of our listeners right now, thinking about their, their career trajectory or growth, potential job opportunities, et cetera, and, and maybe they're potentially graduating into what is the job market today, which in the marketing realm isn't going to be incredible, but I'm sure we'll bounce back, recover in different arenas. Uh, w- would you say for them, and I don't know if there's a right answer here, but would you say it's better to go maybe from startup to corporate uh, in terms of your kind of career trajectory or from maybe corporate to startup? Because I, I, I've heard debates on both of, hey, go, go corporate or work for a big agency, then go kind of start your own. Or... Uh, you know, obviously, your experience going startup corporate. Wh- what would you say? Is there is there a preference? And I know there's there's never a right answer for everyone, but uh, if, if if you had to bet, like, w- I guess which uh, which would you which would you put your money on as the better output?
1: It's a hard question to answer. I'll tell you why. When I first started, I was pretty much convinced that the best place to do this was to start in a smaller company and do a little bit of everything and learn a lot about everything. And i did that i went and helped start a digital ad agency one of the first digital ad agencies in the united states and we learned a lot and i called it my own professional mba that's how i learned now in retrospect a part of me wishes i had gone back and gotten an mba or gotten some sort of extended degree now i think that comes down to individual taste because i certainly wasn't ready to go do it when the opportunity was there and these days i kind of wish i had had it but i did get a lot of the same experiences that i would have had if i'd gone and gotten it so I think you have to look at individually how you learn, how you come to an understanding of what you're good at and what you're going to be enjoying in a career trajectory. So I think you can go into a big company and you can go in it with the idea that they do rotations or that you can go connect with a lot of people and learn about a lot of different areas of a business. And you can get a a really full grasp of an entire suite of opportunities inside of a corporate or enterprise environment. And then you can find your path that way. Or you can go into a startup environment where you can really put your fingers and toes into everything that's going on, and you can learn about it that way. And then you determine: do you want to stay in that track and you'll only work in smaller companies and do startup environments, or do you want to go work into a corporate or enterprise type of environment? You know, some people stay in one track or the other, and they're quite successful. So it really comes down to personal taste, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, I like that point. And and something you've been speaking to a lot is uh, is leadership and. Obviously, you've managed more nimble kind of startup teams, which is a very different kind of environment. And and also now kind of on the corporate side of things, Uh, for for a lot of listeners right here that that are younger marketers and and likely working for leaders and management. What are some characteristics that stand out to you uh, for for really great uh, team members uh, in the marketing realm? I mean, obviously, you have to be proficient in what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have kind of the bare minimum, just, just good enough to get by, but what are some additional kind of characteristics that, that, you know, our, our audience here should look to kind of cultivate?
1: I think if you're, if, if it was me, if I'm looking at yeah. the type of people to hire, et cetera, I look for, first of all, some excitement. I look for some energy and I know this is a very California type of an answer, but yeah, I look for somebody who's excited to be there, who really wants to learn and shows a passion for a business doesn't have to be passion for that business specifically nobody really gets excited about just data or get excited about you know any specific category but you have to be excited to be there you have to want to learn and you have to come in with the right attitude i think that's a big big key thing the second thing which i alluded to a couple minutes ago is you've got to figure out how to put your ego at bay and ego is a good thing but it can be a really bad thing because ego feeds your amb- ambition it feeds pride in the work that you do and that's good where it gets in the way And it influences your decision-making process and says, yes, I'm too good for that or I'm too good for this, et cetera. That's where it becomes a problem. So I also look for people who have a humility to them, who understand that you got to work hard and that when you work hard, things will be afforded to you, opportunities will be afforded to you. So I look for those two things. But then I also look for some categorical knowledge. So I mean by that is when I would be looking for somebody who has an interest in marketing, has ideas, maybe they've shown some ambition and done some things on their own. In the past, they could point to that they're proud of. They don't necessarily have to have categorical knowledge about that specific business industry, but they have to have a passion for having demonstrated doing things in marketing in the past. I personally don't really, uh, I don't typically hire people from uh, random backgrounds into marketing, like political science majors and those types of people into marketing. I like people who have actually been interested in marketing. So for me, that's something that I typically looking for, but not everybody does that. Some people will look for the people that can just flat out train.
0: Certainly there's a, there's always a wide array of that, but then you also have your traditional, I would, I would say like just advertising marketing nerds like me, that this is just what, what we love. And we're, we, you know, we have shelves of books that are just filled with all the, right. the latest marketing stuff. So right. and you
1: get excited about it and you take in an interest in it and you do what I do, which is when I was younger, I would sit there and study the TV commercials that came on and I would understand why they were talking to me. What was interesting about them? What was the emotional hook of it that was interesting to me? Those are the kind of things you start to just naturally, naturally float towards to learn.
0: Yeah, I love that. And uh, you know, something being in the B two B realm is the you know the the reality that you are going to have to work with sales. And there's a lot of history between the sales versus marketing and the different methodologies and approaches and styles. And you you, you can envision your traditional sales man or woman as you know very numbers oriented. Where's the ROI? I want leads. Da 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 da. Whereas marketing, a little bit more systematized, seeing the bigger picture, branding, storytelling, the, those things that sales may regard to as, oh, those are just foo-foo emotional things. They don't mean anything, right? So in your experience, having to coordinate and kind of work between teams and even building out sales teams, how, how have you best found a way to, to balance uh, that that act between what is sales and marketing and, and ultimately bring that together towards the same direction? Because Everyone wants the same and goal at the end of the day. I just think there's a lot of different methodologies to get there.
1: Yeah, that sales and marketing breakdown, it comes up a lot. It comes up in almost every organization I've ever been in. And I will say that it's because of really one thing, communication. As an example, when sales and marketing don't get along, it's because sales assumes marketing is not doing anything to help sales. And marketing is probably doing a lot of things, but they're not communicating. They're not transparent about what is actually happening. And I've seen this in all kinds of companies, in big companies and small companies, where sales and marketing, they say that they're running in parallel, that they're running in the same direction, but if they never actually interweave and they never communicate with one another and they're never transparent about what's going on, if the only interaction point is looking at the pipeline report, it's not looking at the full customer journey report and understanding how those two things intersect, then you're never going to have good, strong, successful relationships between sales and marketing. So one of the things that I try to do First of all, I tend to gravitate towards salespeople. I really do believe that if you want to be a good marketer, you should also be able to go sell. So even at Blue Kai, I would go do sales pitches. You know, I would always go out there and be willing to go talk to a customer and pitch them on our product because if I can't do that, I probably haven't fully gotten down my own understanding of the product and I can't tell the story properly. Sales is also the most important go-to-market motion because you're right in front of a customer. You're telling them the story. And if it resonates with them, they're going to show you all kinds of buying signs and they're going to move down the pipeline and potentially become a customer. And you can see that happening in front of you, which is way different than when you put a marketing campaign out there. You have to go look at reporting, which tells you what's probably happening. You can actually see it in their face when you're in the room. So I feel like you have to have that sales and marketing kinship going on. And you should get into these weekly or biweekly or at the very, very worst case monthly cadences of communicating back and forth, showing the data, showing what's going on in market, actually demonstrating the campaign journey that the customers are going on. Show them the creative, let the salespeople influence the messaging that goes into the creative. They shouldn't be running in parallel. They should be running right in lockstep with one another and they should be always having this dialogue going back and forth. Because a lot of times the customers are gonna give you great feedback in that meeting that you can then go take out and you can go put it into your marketing. And so when those two things aren't happening, the communication and the transparency, the relationship isn't as good. And it's no different than any other relationship. If you've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend, if you've got a parent, you've got a sibling, always it's about communication and being transparent. It's really not rocket science.
0: It's certainly not rocket science. I always know the difficulty of communication and oftentimes marketers can feel like we're speaking a different language than those on the sales side. And for myself, that, that kind of sits, I wouldn't say sit in between, obviously I lean a lot more marketing, but certainly have to have a sales mindset and, and what we do, like as a firm. So I can kind of see both. So it's always fun seeing the TIFFs firsthand. And uh, really, my final thing for you is, uh, you, you mentioned creating one of the first, if not the first, like kind of digital agency and, and pioneering kind of the internet era, marketing data, mm-hmm. so on, I guess, and, and you mentioned also growing up and, and noticing TV commercials and, and focusing on that. And I'm sure there, there were a lot of other resources as well. But what was it that ultimately led to those events to, to see the vision of where it's going to be and ultimately dive into it and and what kind of sparked that. And the, the reason I ask is because I think for a lot of our listeners right now, we, we see AR, we, we see augmented and virtual reality, we see AI, blockchain, all those different technologies, new channels, new mediums. And we're always thinking about, well, what's next? Like, how do I best position myself for that? But, we, you know, it's not, it's not clear until it's ultimately time has passed, right? So- for, for you, what, what was it that ultimately led to that spark? And I know it wasn't probably, you know, something literally just telling you like, hey, create this. And this is what it mm-hmm. needs to look like. And it just fell on my lap. But uh, what, what were some of those resources or inputs that ultimately led to that output?
1: So I can actually trace it back to one thing, which is kind of funny. And I've talked about this in the past in other places. When I was in college, I actually went to college for advertising, which was very unusual to go and get an advertising degree. I got one at Syracuse. But while I was there, and I already had an interest in this, but while I was there, I remember a professor had said to me once, if you want to be successful in marketing and advertising, become a student of popular culture. And prior to that, I had already been very much a student of pop culture. I watched the movies. I listened to lots of music. I was always very interested in that. And when that professor said that to me, it struck a chord because basically what he was telling me is that if you could understand the zeitgeist of the population, if you could understand what the general masses are interested in, then you could see trends in what guides them. And then you could predict where they're going to be going. And so if you do that, if you study popular culture and you understand what makes people tick and what gets them interested, you become really good at predicting it over time because you have a large set of data. So you have data in Then you add that value, which is the creation of value. That's the hypothesis of stuff. And then you have data out, which is you can predict and execute campaigns and see if they work. And so for me, that understanding of popular culture became a driving factor because what it did was it it was an interest to me. I was already interested in it. I was already fascinated by what's going on in popular culture. And now I could use that in my job to be better. So if I wanted to be in marketing, which I did, and I wanted to be in advertising, which I was. I could use the knowledge and the understanding of trends in popular culture to predict what could happen and then create new ideas that would resonate with an audience. And so from when I was 17 till now, when I go to bed, I don't read business books. I read Rolling Stone. I read biographies about rock stars and movie stars and famous people in Hollywood. I read a lot about that stuff. And it's been interesting to me because I can connect those dots. Now I've read my share of business books too, but trying to figure out like what made Lou Wasserman as interesting as Steve Jobs. You know what made all these different people connect, and how could they influence what was going on? You know, uh, in the music world, understanding who Clive Davis is—the guy could predict everything that would happen in music and picked out some of the biggest stars. A guy like Seymour Stein, who was from Sire Records, who could—he pre- founded or he founded—he discovered Madonna, the Talking Heads, and you know, bands like that, the Ramones. Like they could predict what was going to happen, and they turned it into a business. And I feel like that was the same thing in marketing, advertising.
0: That's incredible. Yeah, and, and I love that. It's almost assuming the culture around you. Um, and, and capturing those insights allow you to kind of stay on top of it and, yep. and ultimately wear that, wear that mask. Well, that's incredible insight. I, I can't thank you enough for, for your time today. I will say uh, I, I am still, while I was only three years old, I'm still furious about the Syracuse KU Basketball Championship as a big KU basketball fan, Carmelo Anthony taking down Paul Pierce. But anyway, thank you again for your time today, Corey. This was truly an honor chatting with you. And for all of our listeners here, thank you as always for tuning in, and I will see you all next week.